is Our American Stories. And one of our favorite shows on television is Shark Tank. And for so many good reasons. What's most interesting about Shark Tank is the sharks, those are the guys and gals worth a lot of money, all of them started with nothing. And now they have net worths of in the hundreds of millions, and in one case, Mark Cuban, over a billion dollars. But again, just a generation before, none of them born to wealth. All of them self-made men and women. An African-American, a woman, two men, three men, a woman, sometimes two women, two men. Just depends on the setup. They have some rotating uh, panelists. And then up come people to pitch the sharks so they can get some of that shark money. And just as important, they can get some of that shark experience and wisdom. And so it's really teaching folks about why wealth needs to stay with the wealthy. It can go to the government and high taxes, or it can stay in the marketplace and go to American dreamers who are one day hoping to build wealth themselves, and by the way, build businesses and employ people. And in this particular week, up next in the tank was an 18-year-old kid who discovered an unusual passion that he's looking to make some money on. I discovered my passion for maple syrup when I was 11 years old. I was captivated by the idea that I could go to my own backyard, tap the trees, and make my own delicious maple syrup. When I was 15, I decided I wanted to turn it into a real business. I knew that that meant more equipment and more money. And so I was fortunate enough that my dad was willing to co-sign a bank loan and lend me $70,000 of his own money. If you don't know your numbers, you will not know your business. I've reached a point where I'm getting interest from big retailers, and I need a shark's investment to help me take that next step. I've chosen to take this path. All of my friends have gone to college. I've chosen to run a maple syrup business. Everything in my future is dependent on this working. Wow, not all is lost on this generation, folks. Who is this kid, and what does he want from the sharks? Hi, sharks. My name is Joshua Parker. I'm from Canton, New York. My company is Parker Maple, and I'm seeking $200,000 for a 20% stake in my company. When I was 11 years old, I went on a school field trip to learn how maple syrup is made. Where I expected to find a fun afternoon, I found something else entirely. I found a passion for making maple syrup. <laughs> Four years later, I decided to turn my passion into a real business, and today, Parker Maple is one of the fastest growing and most innovative maple syrup companies in the country. Parker Maple offers an entire line of maple products, from maple syrup to maple cotton candy, and today, I am working to successfully bring a unique maple product into the national space, maple butter, a delicious, creamy, and natural spread, perfect for toast, icing, fruit, and just about anything else. Sharks, I have proven that the American dream is not dead that people in my generation can succeed. We will be America's brand for real maple. Wow, be still my heart. By the way, Alex, $200,000, 20%. What's he valuing his company at? $1 million. <laughs> $1 million. And by the way, this is really good. I, I, I love now that generations of people understand things like valuation of businesses. It's terrific. So the next time you hear someone say that today's kids are lazy, think of Joshua Parker. And from the sound of things... The sharks are eating it up. Tell us what we're eating here. This is the uh, maple yes. butter here. So the maple oh, butter good. is on the English muffin. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. I love the it. The spread is really good. Thank you very much. Cotton that candy is, really good. is out of this world. And here's Joshua's sales numbers. To date, we've done just about uh, $360,000 in sales since the beginning of the company. Well, how about this year? By the year's end, we'll break $1.5 in sales. Wow. Wow. Yes. Impressive. And by the way, you don't get them to hear, you don't hear wow that often on Shark Tank. 
Barbara has some issues with Joshua's valuation of $1 million, though. Will she be in or out? Can I return to the spectacular figure, $1.5 million in sales by year end? Yes. I wasn't quite sure I was clear as to how you were going to get there. That's based on getting into 75 to 100 clubs with Costco. But um, you don't yes. have those orders, nor commitments. Right. So that's a projection based on optimism. Right. Yes. I've sold product into Costco, but I don't find that they order the additional store so quickly. Right. They really want to see how well it does. I think it's going to take you a number of years. I think you're optimistic about what your sales are going to be. I just don't think you're going to make the kind of money, and I don't think I'd get my money back out, so I'm out. Oof. What about Mark Cuban? He has an issue with packaging and price point for the maple cotton candy. In or out? This is only 114 calories. Yes. Whenever you have something this big that tastes this good. It's only 114 calories? Wow. Yeah, that sugar. only has 114 calories. You should say wow. across the whole thing, yes. only 114 calories. Yeah. Yeah. How much does it cost? 72 cents. And what do you sell it for? $1.50. No, you're selling it for $2.99 now. Okay. This will be your best seller. But in order to be investable, you're going to have to scale to enormous size. And I just don't see you doing that right now. I'm out. Robert is also skeptical about this kid's optimistic valuation. In or out? I think your forecast is really optimistic based on your own story. I don't know if it's going to happen, but you've got a long way to go. Just not a space that I want to be in right now. I'm out. And Lori has some kind words for our young entrepreneur. But will kind words be enough to get a deal? You are a dynamo. You are going to make things happen no matter what happens. I love your product, but I don't see it as an investment for me because your margins are so very low. For that reason, I'm out, but I can see you making it. Mr. Wonderful has a little story to tell about his extensive background with maple products. Before I was known as Mr. Wonderful, (laughs) I lived and went to school right on the border of Vermont and Quebec. Oh, really? It was a military college. I became a marksman there, but I was also known as Maple Man. Really? Because I love maple syrup. No question about it. That's a cute story from Mr. Wonderful, I mean Mr. Maple. But will it be enough to get this kid a deal? The problem here, Josh, is 200,000 for 20% imputes a million dollar valuation, but you're not actually profitable yet. So for any investor, I wouldn't do this for 20%. It would be a huge amount of equity. And you're a family business. I don't see any way to to do a deal that's going to make sense and be a benefit to both of us. Maple Man is out. Ouch. While Joshua didn't score a deal, he got some great exposure just by being on Shark Tank. And he's not letting it get him down. I think that in the tank today, I learned more than a semester in college. I'm going to go home. I'm going to make the changes that I think that are right for the company and really take their advice. Well, was he adorable, that kid, adorable. right? Adorable. This is better than cotton candy. It's amazing. Put that cotton candy in my trailer. And that's why we love Shark Tank. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And up next, one of our favorite segments, combining two of our favorite subjects, history 
and music. And now it's time for This Week in Music History. Here's Jesse. You ain't nothing but a hound dog In music history, 1958, Elvis Presley's Hound Dog exceeded 3 million copies sold in the States, becoming only the third single to do so, Bing Crosby's White Christmas and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer by Gene Autry being the other two. This same week in music history, 13 years later in 1971, Elvis kicked off a 15-day North America tour at the Metropolitan Sports Center in Minneapolis. Announcer Al Dvorin uttered the well-known phrase, Elvis has left the building at the end of the show. He was asked to make the announcement in an effort to quiet fans who began to riot for an encore. All right, Uh, Elvis has left the building. I've told you absolutely straight up to this point, you know that he has left the building. He left the stage and went out the back with the policeman, and he is now gone from the building. And in 1989, former U.S. Army Staff Sergeant Barry Sadler died at a Veterans Administration Hospital in Nashville from complications brought on by an unexplained gunshot wound to the head. Sadler is best remembered for his hit, The Ballad of the Green Berets, which stayed on top of the chart for five weeks in 1966. He was 49 years old at the time of his death. Fighting soldiers from the sky Fearless men who jump and die Men who mean just what they say The brave men of the Green Beret Silver wings upon their chest Ultimately, the song was named Billboard's number one single for the year of 1966. It was written by Staff Sergeant Barry Sadler beginning when he was training to be a special forces medic. The author, Robin Moore, who wrote the book, The Green Berets, helped Sadler with the lyrics and got a recording contract with RCA Records. The lyrics were written in honor of Green Beret specialist James Gabriel Jr., the first native Hawaiian to die in Vietnam in 1962. Men who fight by night and day Courage take from the Green Beret Never close your eyes anymore When I kiss your lips And in 2003, Bobby Hatfield of the Righteous Brothers was found dead in a hotel room in Michigan 30 minutes before he was due on stage at the age of 63. The autopsy report stated that Hatfield suffered a sudden unexpected death due to an acute cocaine toxicity. The Righteous Brothers had the 1965 number one single, You've Lost That Love and Feeling. And in 1961, this week in music history, Jimmy Dean started a five-week run at number one with Big Bad John, a number two in the UK chart. Every morning at the mine, you could see him arrive. He stood six foot six and weighed 245, kind of broad at the shoulder and narrow at the hip. And everybody knew you didn't give no lip to Big John. It won Dean the 1962 Grammy Award for Best Country Western Recording. 
Big Bad John. And in 1967, this week in music history, during a three-hour session, Bob Dylan recorded All Along the Watchtower at Columbia Recording Studios in Nashville, Tennessee. There must be some way out of here Say the joker to the thief There's too much confusion I can't get no relief Businessmen, they drink my wine Plowmen dig my earth None of them along the line Covered by numerous artists in various genres, All Along the Watchtower is strongly identified with the interpretation of Jimi Hendrix recorded for Electric Ladyland. The Jimi Hendrix version, released just six months after Bob Dylan's original recording, became a top 20 single in 1968 and was ranked number 47th in Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. No reason to get excited And born this week in music history, 1941, Guy Clark, singer-songwriter, wrote songs for Johnny Cash, Ricky Skaggs, the 1997 album Essential Guy Clark. He died in May of 2016 in Nashville following a lengthy battle with lymphoma. Here's a portion of his song called The Guitar, which you can hear in its entirety at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Well, I was passing by a pawn shop in an older part of town. Something caught my eye. I stopped and turned around I stepped inside and there I spied In the middle of it all Was a beat-up old guitar Hanging on the wall What do you want for that piece of junk? I asked the old man He just smiled and took it down He put it in my hand Said, you tell me what it's worth You're the one who wants it Turn it up Play a song and let's just see what haunts it. So I hit a couple of chords in my old country way of strumming. And then my fingers turned to lightning, man, I never heard it coming. It was like I always knew. I just don't know where I learned it. It wasn't nothing but the truth. So I just reared back and burned it. Also born this week in music history, 1948, Glenn Fry, guitar vocals for the Eagles with number one hits like Hotel California plus five U.S. number one albums. Fry played guitar and keyboards as well as singing lead vocals on songs like Take It Easy. Well, I'm running down the road trying to loosen my load. I got seven women on my mind. Four that want to own me, two that want to stone me, once and she's a friend of mine. Take it The sound of your own wheels drive you crazy In 
1966, this week in music history, John Lennon met Yoko Ono for the first time when he visited her art exhibition called Unfinished Paintings and Objects. Here's Yoko Ono some years later screaming into a microphone at some sort of exhibit. Oh. You know, it sounds a little better if you just give it a little instrumental music bed into the bed. There you go. It almost works with jazz. It's kind of like a an abstract kind of a... You know, coming to think of it, this actually would work better off as heavy metal. Hell, it goes with just about anything, doesn't it? Like some Peruvian music? That's nice. That almost sounds kind of good. Maybe Yoko's onto something here. Either way, there you have it. Ladies and gentlemen, the vocal stylings of Yoko Ono. And this week in music history, 1974, Bachman-Turner Overdrive, BTO, went number one on the U.S. singles chart with You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet. Randy Bachman stuttered through the lyrics of the demo recording as a private joke about his brother who had a speech impediment. The record company liked that take better than the non-stammering version and decided to release it. And that's this week in music history. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and today we have Faith's Villages series. We've been sending our youngest producer Faith Garcia to the Villages Florida to talk to the folks who live there and the Villages is a retirement community with over 150,000 residents, 2,500 clubs and over 600 holes of golf. This time around Faith attended a clogging group and talked to the leader Patty. Take it away, Faith. Patty is a clogger. Clogging is a type of folk dance that is done to time with music. And, of course, with special clogging shoes. And yep, they have a clogging club in the villages. Then again, it would be easier to ask what clubs they don't have than what clubs they do have. She has been clogging forever. 
But of course, our bodies don't hold up forever. So what has it been like for Patty growing older? Well, first of all, I don't try to hide it. Because everyone here, they always tell me, don't get old. That's my advice, don't get old. Do you feel like you've just, you've accepted it? I wouldn't say that to you. Um, there's, if I think back on all my years, I, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. It's okay to get old. It's part of the whole process. Um, I have um, four children. Um, my, my one's son, um, he died 30 years ago, but he's still a part of our family, you know. And I have nine grandchildren, 14 to 24. I can't have grandchildren that are that age if I'm not this age. <laughs> She is grateful for her age. She loves to see her kids and grandkids in this stage of life. But there is something she briefly mentioned, the passing of her son. I have found that nearly every person I talk to in the villages has gone through something, some form of loss or difficulty, and they've all learned to deal with it in one way or another. I don't always know what it is right away, but I know it's there. It frames how they talk about things, the advice that they give the way that they now live their life, and all our experiences mold us and bring us together to the person that everyone around us sees and interacts with. But death and tragedy are hard to talk about, even if they have formed many of the ideas and ways that we interact with people now. But oftentimes when these stories are shared, we begin to understand people a little bit better. So how exactly did her son pass away? I was 43 at the time, and your first thought is, how do we live the rest of our life without him? Okay. He was 19, and he died in an automobile accident. It was like the day after Christmas in 1987. Um, it hits you like a ton of bricks. You know, he wasn't sick, you're not expecting it. Okay. And I had three other children. So my daughter was 20, he was 19, my next son was 17, and then my other daughter was 14. And um, I, I feel that I received a grace from God to be thankful that I had him for 19 years rather than to be mad that I didn't have him anymore. I'm the only woman in the world who ever got to be his mother. He was a great kid. And um, he just would have had a birthday in October. He would have been 49. You don't get over it. It hurts, but you don't hurt as much as you did at first. I don't know why some people get angry and bitter and mad at God, and some people don't. I, I've asked that question to myself many, many times. For me, all I can say is it's a grace, it's a blessing to, to not have that bitterness and that anger. And I've tried to, um, without lecturing them, I've tried to pass that along with my other children. And I, I think they feel that way. Um, my oldest daughter, at first, I know, did not. She was, she was angry. And for a while, she didn't go to church. And I, I hope she doesn't feel that way anymore. My three older children were very close in age. So they were all very close. And I, what I remember thinking was, um, 
my deep concern for my children that they had lost their brother. You add that to the pain that you feel. Oh, and also I think that the more you can do for other people, the easier it is for you to, to not be sad and gloomy. Um, what I did after my son died, I started volunteering at um, nursing homes. <laughs> Sometimes I would go four or five days a week, and when I was there, I didn't think about myself. I thought about who I was helping, because it was just a private individual thing, and you were with these people who maybe didn't even know who you were, and their their families didn't maybe even know you were visiting them. All, all you did was you made their life a little happier while you were there. There was no big appreciation dinner, there was no patting you on the back saying you're doing it. I, I'm not comfortable with that kind of stuff. It was just you're doing it and you're helping this person, it's between you and that person and God. And and so that takes your feelings about yourself and the sad things in your life totally away. That was, that was basically how I got through that earlier time. Was he alone when the accident happened? No, um, they were in college and uh, he was home for the holidays and you know his, his other friends and, and they went out. He, he was a really good kid. He had so many friends and uh, he, I, I, I can still remember this so clearly. Christmas was on a Friday, and so Saturday night we all went to Mass. And we came back and we had our leftovers and everything, and one of his friends came by, and uh, they were going to a party. And so you know what college kids are going to do at a party. There's, there was drinking going on. And um, um, his friend came while we were finishing our dinner, and so he, you know, he went out. That he said, bye, Mom, you know, happy and everything else. And literally, I never saw him again. The part about it that uh, you could feel bitter about if you wanted to, but um, one of his friends from high school, his parents owned a bar, and they had gone to the bar. And the boy's older brother was having his birthday. I think he was turning 21. And see, these boys are like 19. Some of them were 20, and they're not legally able. And so the parents were giving them all drinks. And they left there, and the boy driving the car was speeding. And he hit construction barricades, those wooden ones. And he hit them with such speed that they all flew apart. My son was sitting in the passenger seat, and he was hit in the head, and he basically died instantly. He was, yeah. And the other boys were all right, the boy driving and the one sitting in the back. That would be something that you could say, I wonder why, you know? You could say, I wonder why. Um, but I don't. I mean, I don't wonder why. I, I think there was something different that happened to me that maybe doesn't happen to everybody, and I don't know why. Um, the bitterness, the anger, it was never there. The sadness, the sadness and the pain, that was all there. And I don't feel it's because of anything that I did or said. I, thought, I think it was just a grace that was given to me. I recognize that and I accept that. And when we come back, we'll learn how Patty dealt with her loss. And this is Faith and her Villages series. 
Patty's story continues after these messages here on Our American Stories. And you can go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do and catch all of Faith's great reporting from one remarkable part of this country that not enough of us visit and not enough of us report on. Again, Patty's story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we've been listening in on Faith's conversation, and we just learned how Patty lost her 19-year-old son many, many years ago, and now back to Faith to tell us how Patty dealt with the loss. What did she do when this horrible thing happened? Well, she tried to stay busy. She mentioned that at one point, There's that thought of, okay, well, now how do we live the rest of our life? Apparently, you have to take it one step at a time. So much of Patty's life was shaped around her faith, and this foundation of faith, well, it started when she was very young, with her mother. The greatest gift my mom gave me was to, we all went to Mass. Not my dad, but my mom took my brothers and I to Mass every Sunday. If we were on vacation, we went to Mass. She didn't drive, sometimes we walked. We always went to Mass. But I think whatever seed it was that was planted, and I carried that on with my husband, and I carried that on with our children and our family, and that's what I feel was the biggest gift that I had from my mother. You know, she wasn't a good example as far as other things. I think that that was the foundation without me ever realizing it. I never knew. I think it was when my son died that maybe it all came together for me. That there, there, was, there was something there that I had. That pushed you to look for, or I mean, brought you to the point of like, oh, I need something to cling to? Yes, pretty much so. Um, I, I was trying to understand this, this is, um, my, my belief is that when you die, you die physically, but your soul still lives. So I would lie awake at night. I didn't share it with anybody. I didn't talk to anybody. I was trying to figure, because I had philosophy and metaphysics and theology in college and all this. I was, I was, I was trying to understand him in a different state. Your, your son? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, I was trying to connect to him. I, I mean, not. It, it wasn't like an obsession type thing. But, but it made you think it about It made me think. Of, it, it made me think about philosophical things and, and metaphysical things. It, it, it made me think after a person physically dies. I love that she was honest about who her mother was. She wasn't some perfect angel. 
But the one good thing that she did do, something that has helped Patty throughout the entirety of her life and through one of the most difficult situations anyone could face, was her faith. Now, one of the most painful things anyone can go through is the loss of a loved one. But something particularly and acutely painful is the loss of one's own child. Oftentimes, in situations like these, the parents of the lost child either grow closer together or they drift apart. Patty helps shine some light on this topic. How did it affect your relationship with your husband? Okay, um, I think it's, we're still together, as I said, after 51 years. I would say that um, not just the difference between male and female, but people grieve differently, okay? But sometimes it is a masculine-feminine difference. Um, For me, um, I wanted to talk about my son. And sometimes if his friends would come over and we could laugh about the things that he did and and the person that he was, whereas my husband didn't want to talk about him. And that made it very difficult. I think that um, our house became very quiet. So everybody would be gone and I was home. Um, And that's not good to I I understand why people maybe want to be home alone and sit in the dark and whatever but it's not good for you and so I did a number of I wasn't working I I did a number of things at the time I was I played bridge I bowled and I was very involved with my daughter's swim team so I continued all of those activities. I tried to make myself go somewhere every day. It took me a couple weeks to get to that point. But then um, sometimes I would just go to a mall and uh, get a Coke and sit there and watch the fountain for a little bit. And then sometimes I would have to leave and go home. It's almost like a panic attack. But, but our, our house itself became very quiet. The reason that it puts the strain, I believe, in couples is because you both are falling apart and you're, you're falling down and you can't hold somebody else up when you're falling down yourself. You can't hold each other up. You know, you can't do it. We didn't fight. <laughs> it was just quiet. You know, something was gone. You can't hold someone else up when you are falling down yourself. And while it has been difficult, Patty, for some reason or another, has learned to accept it. And of course, remembers her son, Billy, very fondly. What are some ways that you guys choose to remember your son or, um, or your favorite story about him? He would do things, um, like when he was 16 and could drive and he had a car, he didn't have a car, but he had a girlfriend. And so the circus was in Dallas. So he was taking his girlfriend to the circus and he said to my daughter, who was 11, the youngest one, Lauren, you want to go to the circus with us? And she did and he bought her all this stuff. 
kids that are that age don't ask their little sister to, to go come to on a date with them. Exactly. And he'd drive the carpool to swim team because she swam every day. And one of my friends, her son was the same way, and they were in the carpool with us. And she said, how do you get him to drive that carpool? Her son wouldn't do anything. I said, he just does. It's, it's just the way he was. And since Billy's death, there have been some other things that have happened and brought healing as well. I'll tell you another very, very interesting thing. And I think this is God's hand in everything. So my son's birthday, his name was Billy William, and his birthday is October the 8th, okay? And the day that he died was December the 27th was the actual date that it was. So six years after he died, on December the 28th, my grandson was born, my first one that's like 24 now, and he, my daughter named him William, after her brother. And so it was the day after, you know, Billy had, my Billy had died on the 27th, and then my grandson Billy was born on the 28th. So it, it doesn't take the place of the child you lost, but it gives you a reason to have happy thoughts on that day. And my um, one of my other grandsons, well, he's um, 16 now. He was actually born on Billy's birthday. He was born on October the 8th. And my daughter named him William after her brother, but she calls him Will. So I have one grandson born on his birthday, and I have another grandson born basically the day after he died. So I have two Williams that God put into our lives on days that could be days that you have nostalgic thoughts and it makes those days easier. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah, they don't doesn't take their place, but it's not a day where you sit around and feel real real sad thoughts. You know, you wonder what he'd be like, but you don't have real sad thoughts because you think of them and all the joy that they bring into your life. So. That is no coincidence. And finally, just a little piece of advice. Accept yourself right where you are right now. Knowing that maybe today you're sad, but this is just today. To, to be happy or to be sad is just a feeling and it's going to change. If you can find peace, that's a lot more important than being happy and sad because peace is about what's inside you and your relationship with God. And if you have that peace and that relationship, you can get through things that are really sad and really difficult. doesn't mean they're not going to be sad and hurt and you're going to be, oh, my life is a mess, but, but that's just for today. I think peace is more important than to be happy or sad. And, and if, it's, if it's not good right now, it's going to change. It might change for the better, it might change for the worse, but if you have that relationship, whatever comes, you can do it. Whatever comes, you can do it. Thank you, Patty. This is Faith Garcia from Our American Stories reporting to you from the Villages, Florida. And great job as always, Faith, and thank you, Patty, for sharing your story. Accept yourself right where you are right now. 
Couldn't have better advice. And here on Our American Stories, we shared with you Patty's story, her husband's story, her son Billy's story, and two grandsons named William. Their stories, too, in a way, and the village's stories. We continue our series with Faith Garcia, and we look forward to more. Again, this is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. American stories and the Thanksgiving story well you're about to hear it for the hour it didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863 but the story of its miraculous birth and the pangs that accompanied its delivery to the new world began hundreds of years before this inauguration what you are about to hear is the spellbinding story of how it all began and what it means to us today. They want to hit a Thanksgiving song. All right. All right. This is uh, this is a Thanksgiving song. I hope you enjoy it. Turkey, lurkey, do and turkey, lurkey, dap. I eat that turkey, then I take a nap. Thanksgiving is a special night. Oh, I love turkey on Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Thanksgiving is the only American holiday that has actually remained relatively innocent. It's not something that we have been able to commercialize. But there's something going on here more than feasting, family, and football. And I'm not talking about the time you constructed a belt-buckled paper hat. What is it about these pilgrims? Why do we pay so much attention to these immigrants to the New World? They were always viewed as irrelevant, weird, and different. They didn't start a college. The Massachusetts colony did. That college is called Harvard. The Pilgrims never became rich or influential. In fact, William Bradford, the governor of Plymouth Plantation, and the man who documents the founding of the Plymouth Colony, thinks at the end of his life that everything the Pilgrims had done had been a failure. So what is it about their experience that makes them so worthy of attention? That I may truly unfold the story of Plymouth Plantation, I must begin at the very root. As with many immigrants, their story begins thousands of miles away. It is told through the writings of one man who lived it. 
The year is 1607. The place, Scrooby Manor, in North Nottinghamshire, England. Under the flag of religion. Then said the Lord, "I shall endeavour to manifest this history in a plain style, with singular regard unto the simple truth in all things." At least as near to the truth as my slender judgment can attain. That was William Bradford. His record of everything that happens on their voyage and arrival to the New World is our best source of information. He keeps detailed records because he believes that what they are doing is tremendously important. Bradford's writing is later published as "Of Plymouth Plantation," but it is not published until some 230 years later, in the 1850s. Lonely and intelligent, in a world that feels increasingly precarious and adrift to him, the 12-year-old Bradford seeks solace in the Bible. Bradford writes that reading the Scriptures makes a great impression upon him, and the more he reads. The more troubled he becomes at the gulf between the world he sees around him, and the simplicity and purity of the gospel. Oh, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He had this profound sense as a 12-year-old that the congregation he was a part of was corrupt, that the church was moving them in a direction that was not right, that they prayed to the depraved beliefs of mortal men that were moving them away from God. And so this was a deep conviction, and I think there you have the beginnings of a very complex, inward-looking person who was improbably preparing for the ultimate journey. In 1607, Bradford is an orphan living on his uncle's farm, but his passion is his faith. And without a prince, two men become his mentors. This famous and worthy man, John Robinson, was our pastor for many years. And without Terrafin, Mr. Brewster, a reverend man like a father to me, became an elder of our church. Love a woman beloved of her. These two men guided us in all things. It is they who laboured in this secret church to have the right worship of God and discipline of Christ according to the simplicity of the gospel. Yet others persisted to disturb the peace of our poor persecuted church. Return and seek the Lord their God. One wouldn't know it by looking at them, but these worshippers are breaking the law. The official state religion is the Anglican Church of England. King Henry VIII established it 70 years earlier in 1534. He placed himself at the head of the church, replacing the Catholic Pope in Rome. English Protestants were overjoyed. They saw England joining the great Protestant Reformation of Martin Luther and the overthrow of the old Catholic Church. Here's Dermot McCulloch, professor of church history at Oxford University. The old church had. Power, because it said that it could help people to get to heaven by saying masses for their soul. Luther and the Protestants said that wasn't so. God had all the power; we have none. And by saying that, they said that the old church had no power. That is what split the Western world apart in the 16th century. But real change in the Church of England is slow to come. Many of the Pilgrim separatists are fined or go to jail. For not attending the Church of England, and for starting their own separate congregation 
that secretly meets in people's homes. In the early 17th century, the Church of England still had remnants of the past like stained glass. The church still had bishops and priests and deacons with cathedrals, choirs. In other words, it looked rather more like the old church. And a lot of Protestants did not like that one little bit. And when we come back, more of William Bradford's struggles back in England. We're celebrating the story of Thanksgiving here on Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Thanksgiving, and we go back to William Bradford and his struggles back in England. These pilgrim separatists feel the King's Church can never be purified. They must separate from it completely. That's the difference between a Puritan and a separatist. Puritans simply wanted to change it, make it better. Separatists make another big leap of the imagination. They say you shouldn't have a Church of England. You shouldn't have a church which is connected with the civil power. And in the 16th century, that's a very big deal. Because of the persecutions from the Church of England, the pilgrims decide to run away, to leave England in mass to leave behind everything that they have known because their Christian conscience demands it. They arrive in the very libertarian seaport city of Amsterdam, Holland, which is the most exciting, prosperous, cosmopolitan city in the whole world, known for its religious toleration. You can do anything you want there and the government won't interfere with you. Amsterdam's reputation in the early 1600s is about the same as it is today. A city famous for its prostitution and 500 plus alehouses. So when the pious pilgrims arrive in Sin City, it wasn't according to their expectations. Within a year they decide to move again, 22 miles south, to the much smaller city university town of Leiden. Leiden is a much better fit, but shortly after arriving, another idea begins to generate a great deal of enthusiasm from some of the more daring leaders of this tiny little group. They feel called to move again, but where? Most are content with their labors here. We labor only as God wishes. Yet some prefer and choose the prisons in England rather than liberty in Holland with these afflictions. Faith, if some better and easier place could be found, it could draw many and take away these discouragements. And where would we go? Where could we go? What's of America? There are vast and unpeopled countries in America which are fruitful and fit for habitation. I have not heard that America is unpeopled. There are no civil men there, but only savages who need 
This is an extraordinarily audacious uh, proposition because up until this time, uh, there was only one existing supposedly successful English settlement, Jamestown, and that was hardly a success. Uh, people were dying at a frightening rate every year. The pilgrims decide to make their home in the New World, where they can pursue their godly path without interference and without compromise. But how do these poor pilgrims get the money they need in order to finance the trip? They apply to investors who might like the idea of exploiting a bunch of religious fanatics like themselves. A deal was made. They use a big part of their very limited resources in order to purchase the aging vessel called the Speedwell. But the Speedwell will fail to live up to its name. She was called the Speedwell. And this was intended to be a vessel that would provide them with a way to explore the coast, search for furs, and if the worst should happen, it would provide them with a, a method of escape uh, from the New World. About 55 pilgrim separatists leave Holland on the Speedwell for England. With a prosperous wind, we came in short time to Southampton. There we made port and found the bigger ship come from London lying ready, with all the rest of our company. The pilgrims see for the first time another ship loaded with supplies, waiting to join them for the trip across the Atlantic Ocean. This supply ship is called the Mayflower. The Mayflower was a merchant vessel, a cargo ship. She was not designed to carry passengers. She's about 180 tons, which means you could fit 180 casks of wine, tons of wine in its hold. She was beak-bowed, square-rigged, with high castle-like structures fore and aft. She was a very reliable ship, standard transportation of the early 17th century. The recent arrivals from Leiden are reunited with William Brewster and two fellow separatists, John Carver and Robert Cushman, who have been hard at work setting up the voyage. On August 5th, 1620, as they prepare to depart, the pilgrims say their farewells, which are deeply emotional. Edward Winslow, who was one of the chief men going along on the voyage, describes the scene as follows. We refreshed ourselves after our tears with the singing of psalms, making joyful melody in our hearts as well as with the voice. And indeed, it was the sweetest melody that ever mine ears have heard. And then with mutual embraces and tears, they took their leaves, one of the other, which proved to be the last leave to many of them. After three years of planning and preparation, two ships, the Speedwell and the Mayflower, are finally on their way to America on what will prove to be the most historic voyage in human history. They weren't the people that you would expect to be founding a new colony. They weren't soldiers, they were not emissaries of a foreign government, they were not particularly well provided with supplies. At least half of them were separatists, that is to say radical Protestants, who were religious exiles, who had been living in Leiden, the Dutch Republic. They weren't the people you would automatically expect to be founding a new outpost of the British Empire. The Mayflower is under the command of Master Christopher Jones. He isn't a religious man, but he is a remarkably decent one. He is so moved by the pilgrims' devotion and faith 
that he offers to bunk with his petty officers and gives his cabin to the women and small children. He and his ship have been hired to take the Pilgrim's provisions to America and then return to England. The two ships travel west for seven days and then to their shock and dismay, the Speedwell begins to wallow and take on water. Not soon after the Speedwell has trouble, the master of the Speedwell noted that um, she was taking on more water than they could handle. Here's how passenger William Bradford chronicles this moment. We had not gone far, but Mr. Reynolds, the master of the lesser ship, complained that he had found his ship so leaky as he durst not put further to sea till she was mended. Because of the leaky speedwell, the ships do not turn back once, but two times. Can you imagine the miles that they retrace their steps all the way back to England? The pilgrims lose an entire month while attempts are made and valuable food provisions are sold in order to repair the speedwell. It's early September. This is not the time you want to sail to America. Westerly gales are screaming across the Atlantic. They'd be right in your teeth if you head out. William Bradford writes that some 20 passengers decide the voyage is not a very good idea and get off the ship for good. He also writes, it was judged that the speedwell would not prove sufficient for the voyage, upon which it was resolved to dismiss her and proceed with the Mayflower alone. On September 6, 1620, fearfully late in the season, everyone got on the Mayflower, left Plymouth Harbor, and set out on her own across the Atlantic. Because of the speedwell having to stay behind, there are many more people on Mayflower than they anticipated carrying initially. There were ultimately 102 passengers on, on Mayflower on a relatively small ship. It's a dark, dank, airless space, less than five feet high. So, you, you know, you were hunched as you walked up and down. There were some animals down there, goats and pigs and chickens and provisions. It was more like a cave, I think, than a place fit for human habitation. Along with the 102 passengers on the Mayflower was between 25 and 35 crewmen on board. All being now compact together in one ship, we put to sea again with a prosperous wind, which was some encouragement unto us. The story of Thanksgiving continues after these messages. And again, Thanksgiving didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. But my goodness, there's so much more to the story. When we come back, that trip across the Atlantic to the New World, here on Our American Stories, and go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's ouramericannetwork.org.
This is Our American Story, celebrating Thanksgiving. We now pick up with the Pilgrims sailing across the Atlantic on board the Mayflower with Captain Jones and his crew of delinquents. The rough-and-tumble crew do not take their cues from their kind captain. Bradford writes, Yet, according to the usual manner, many were afflicted with seasickness. A bloody psalm singing, God-fearing, puke-stocking bean farmer going to America. <laughs> See that quail, little, little wixies One of the seamen of a lusty, able body, which made him the more haughty. He would always be condemning the poor people in their sickness and cursing us daily with grievous execrations. Into the bucket, girl! Worse than the average. The haughty seaman tells the sick pilgrims how much he looks forward to the day he could sew them up in shrouds and feed them to the fishes. There's no sanitation facilities. If you are seasick, which many are, and have to vomit, if you have to perform your other bodily functions, you're doing it in a swap bucket and you're trying to hit the target on a moving deck. And a lot of people probably miss, so that it's not surprising that people comment on the stench below decks. Shipboard fare in the 17th century was pretty much what shipboard fare would be for centuries to come, and that is miserable. You've got beef in barrels, heavily salted to preserve it. One daily ration of the ship's diet would give a sailor or a passenger on a ship like Mayflower over 6,000 milligrams of salt in the day. Sodium intake at that level causes dehydration and hypothermia, as well as having long-term effects like high blood pressure. The big problem in the 17th century was drinking water. The drinking water in, in England was not reliable, so people relied on beer primarily. And uh, children drank it, everyone drank it. And going to sea, the ordinary ration was one gallon of beer per day per person, which uh, comes out to you know, rather a lot of beer. The Mayflower is now halfway across the Atlantic and the relentless teasing of the pilgrims is about to end for good. Of the haughty sailor who so figged us with his daily curses, it pleased God to smite this young man with a grievous disease, and so was himself the first that was thrown overboard. Thus, his curses light on his own head, and it was an astonishment to all his fellows, for they noted it to be the just hand of God upon him. The death of a sailor is answered by the arrival of a new passenger. Oceanus Hopkins. Only one other passenger dies on the voyage. William Button, a servant, ignores the urgings of Captain Jones to drink his daily portion of lemon juice in order to prevent scurvy. And this disobedience costs him his life. Then, on November 9, 1620, after more than two months at sea, a crew member spies a line of high bluffs gleaming far off in the early dawn light and shouts out excitedly to Captain Jones. I see it! But their jubilation quickly dims 
as word races through the ship that they made landfall far north of their intended Manhattan Island destination. Muskets first. Keep them dry. On Friday, December 16th, 1620, the Mayflower with its cargo of sickened and sea-weary passengers and crew anchors a mile offshore. Everything was wrong. I mean, they had to reach the shore by wading through ice-cold water to the shoreline. And Bradford says at one point, the weather was very cold and the spray of the sea lighting on our coats froze so hard we were as if we had been glazed. And they caught cold and they died. In the harsh winter ahead, half of them die. A fire during a snowstorm burns up much of their precious winter clothing. But the fire fails to reach the barrels of gunpowder. In January and February, sometimes two and three died in a day. Bradford calls it the heart of winter. It's just a very grim time. The biggest toll, the most painful toll, was by March, 13 of the 18 wives die. They die keeping their children alive. All seven daughters live, and 10 of the 13 sons live. Somehow they keep their hopes up by coming up every Sunday to listen to the preaching of William Brewster, who assures them that this is all God's will. Finally, by the middle of March, there's a turning point. It happens on a Friday. It's fair, and the sky is blue. They are still weak. They are still fearful when they spot a tall, muscular Indian wearing only a loincloth and carrying a bow break cover from the line of trees among their huts and walk boldly into their camp. They shout out, Indian coming! Indian coming! Indian coming! Indian coming! With rifle in hand, they approach with incredible caution. But as he draws within range, the Indian shouts out in perfect English, Welcome! The pilgrims responded in kind. And then, in a fateful interchange, the next word from the Indian is, have you got any beer? The pilgrims are caught flat-footed. They don't have any beer. They respond, our beer is gone. Would you like some brandy? And the answer, to no one's surprise, is a wholehearted yes. As they drink the brandy, they discover that this particular Indian, whose name is Samoset, developed his English skills and his taste for beer by spending time with English fishermen who tried to colonize on the New England coast. What Samoset said that was particularly interesting is that there was a Christian Indian by the name of Squanto who spoke perfect English and was living nearby. Squanto became a Christian and spoke English because he was captured and made a slave for nine years in England before he was able to buy his freedom and return home on a ship captained by John Smith. Yes, the John Smith of Pocahontas. As Smith's ship departed, Squanto was almost immediately captured for a second time and sent to the much crueler Spain. Then, just as he was about to be sent to North Africa, where he would have been a slave for the rest of his undoubtedly short life, some Catholic friars were able to buy and rescue a few of the Indian slaves, including Squanto. So Squanto lives with the friars in a monastery, and he becomes a Christian. 
He also learns to speak perfect English and perfect Spanish, and learns to pray every day, and becomes quite devout. With the help of these friars, who had befriended him and became quite impressed by his fine mind and his remarkable character, he gets enough money to buy his way back for the second time. Two months before the pilgrims arrive to the Pawtuxet village in what is today Massachusetts, Squanto finds his village absolutely deserted. Everyone from his tribe has died from a series of plagues that swept across New England. Once Squanto meets the pilgrims, he will change everything. As William Bradford declares in his own recollections, as many as were able began to plant their corn, in which service Squanto stood us in great stead, shown us the manner how to set it. Also, he told us unless we got fish and set it with the seed, the corn would come to nothing. The fish helps the earth. It's if we're feeding them. He was our interpreter and was a special instrument sent of God for our good. Guanto never leaves the pilgrims until the day he dies. This is Our American Stories, the story of Thanksgiving. And when we come back, the final chapter. This is our American stories, the story of Thanksgiving. And we pick it off with the pilgrims being back on their feet, thanks to Squanto, who teaches them how to survive in the new world and guides them in building a trusting relationship with a neighboring Indian tribe that he's been living with. Now let's return to the story. On October of 1621, Bradford writes about the preparations for what we now know as the first Thanksgiving. Thus our peace and acquaintance was pretty well established with the natives about us. We began now to gather in the small harvest we had and to fit up our houses and dwellings against winter, being all well recovered in health and strength. We had all things in good plenty, for some were exercised in fishing, about cod and bass and other fish of which every family had their portion. There was a great store of wild turkeys, of which we took many. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent men on fowling, so we might, after a more special manner, rejoice together. They've made peace with the Indians, they had a good harvest. So they decided to have something that was familiar to them back in England, a kind of harvest feast. It was like God had sent them a strong message, okay, you're on the right path. You've actually made it through the first real test, which is surviving your year and having enough to continue. Squanto's close friend and Indian chief, Massasoit, arrives with 90 of his braves, who are carrying a bunch of dressed deer. 
The table is set and the first thanksgiving prayer is said. Oh Lord, hear us, Lord. How few, weak, and raw were we at our first beginning in this howling wilderness, in the midst of strangers. And yet, God, thou hast wrought this peace for us. Thou hast brought us these allies. The real heroes on this first Thanksgiving are the last four surviving pilgrim women who prepare the feast for the 140 attendees. Not surprisingly, these first Thanksgiving friends spend their post-meal time partaking in activities that are not too far from the spirit in which we partake in them today. They might have been racing, they might have been wrestling, they might have been competing with bow and arrow. I bet they were drinking together. It's a rowdy affair. It's a male-dominated affair more than anything else. They put on, to the best of their ability, a display of their weapons and their martial organization. So both sides are showing off their strength. Amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms. Massazoid's men went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor, upon the captain and others. One thing that's very important is that deer were a high-status food. They were very carefully bestowing these as marks of respect. For three days we entertained and feasted. Three days of celebrating. In native society, that's typical. As a matter of fact, that's probably short. Did the Wampanoags eat the English out of house and home during these three days? Quite possibly. But the English are free to come and visit the villages of their native allies and receive similar hospitality. That's how kin treat one another. That's what the Wampanoags expect by virtue of this alliance. That's the point of the whole exercise. William Bradford and Massasoit will remain friends and allies for as long as they live, despite increasing tensions from the arrival of thousands more Europeans into the Cape Cod territory. Bradford, though uncertain of the colony he founded, was certain about the final destination of his pilgrimage. Abel. Enoch. Noah, Abraham, Sarah. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and being persuaded of them, and embracing them, and confessing that they were both strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Wherefore God was not ashamed to be called their God. 
and he hath prepared for them a city. The pilgrims could never have dreamed of how much their quest for a godly republic would transform the world they were sailing towards, the searchers themselves, and the nation that would rise up long after they were gone, consecrated to their memory. We love the story of Thanksgiving because it's about alliance and abundance and envisioning a future where Native Americans and colonial Americans can come together and celebrate the providences of a single God. But part of the reason that they were grateful was that they had been in such misery, that they had lost so many people on both sides. So in some way, that day of Thanksgiving is also coming out of mourning. It's also coming out of grief. And this abundance that is a relief from that loss. But we don't think about the loss. We think about the abundance. Oh, there's no place like home for the holidays. And that abundance is found in family, in going home for the holidays. If there is such a thing as a typical American Thanksgiving, the Spikiotich family dinner might just qualify. Every year, several generations come together over a boisterous, chaotic ritual no one wants to miss. Do we have gravy? It's truly an American holiday to me. I mean, this is our holiday. Nobody else has it like we do. The people who are here come together and we all understand what it is that we're being thankful for. This is our American holiday. From Atlantic to Pacific. Today in our society where there are no clear answers, we look back at the time and the holiday such as Thanksgiving that once had clear answers. This is very simple. The pilgrims stood for piety, they stood for patriotism. They knew where they stood. We don't. So we look back and we see Thanksgiving as a time where everybody is in a golden afternoon sitting together around the Thanksgiving table and the families are secure and the ideals are secure and there's football on the television, everything's wonderful. And it just fits very well. Thanksgiving retains a lot of meaning for Americans today. I think that people are conscious of that. The fact that they have food on the table, the fact that they can gather together, that has meaning to them and just enjoying a good time with your friends around a table and having a wonderful meal. Those are our true pleasures in life and shouldn't be underestimated. Thanksgiving makes us pause and say, we're lucky we have this. What started as a makeshift meal in a tiny New England village has today become a national celebration of feasting and family togetherness. Thanksgiving may not be the very religious day it once was, but the last Thursday in November is still clearly a sacred date on America's national calendar. For the holidays you can't beat home sweet home. For the holidays you can't
And great job on that, Greg. And what a story that is. And again, Thanksgiving didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. And we learned about the abundance. And my goodness, we learned about the scarcity. We learned about the joy, but we also learned about the grief. By the way, the grief of simply leaving home and leaving everything you know, that's grief. Anybody who's ever done that, I know my grandfather, he shared it with me. He left Lebanon. But it was easier then. Leaving home, then losing so many people, so many women, so many men. What a story, a uniquely American story. And we share it with you here on Our American Stories.